22, we are approaching the end of Jesus' ministry. And really, we're approaching the three chapters that are at the very heart of the whole Bible in and of itself. Everything that God has done and said from Genesis 1-1 all the way through till Revelation chapter 22 finds its meaning, its interpretation, and its sense in the three chapters that we have before us, the chapters that testify concerning the passion and then the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It happens sometimes that there are sections of the Bible, segments, chapters, uh, um, portions, that if you were to remove them from the Bible, they would change the whole body of revealed truth that we have within the Bible. We know that's true concerning the book of Romans. It's an important, pivotal part of the scripture. If you take that out, it changes something. There's other portions and passages that are like that. But if you take out these three chapters of the Bible and the words that are contained in them, then really the Bible makes absolutely no sense at all. And every question that would arise through a reading of the scripture would never find its answer. And so everything in the whole Bible points to what we begin to study tonight and what Jesus fulfills through his death and resurrection upon the cross. And so they are most important chapters indeed as we get into them. And so we begin in chapter 2, 22, verse 1. It says, Now the feast of unleavened bread drew nigh, which is called the Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes saw how they might kill him, for they feared the people. Then entered Satan into Judas, surnamed Iscariot, being of the number of the twelve. And he went his way and communed with the chief priests and captains how he might betray him unto them. And they were glad, and they covenanted to give him money. And he promised and sought opportunity to betray him unto them in the absence of the multitude. And so as the final days are winding down, we're told that the days of the Feast of Unleavened Bread drew nigh, which is called the Passover. Now we've talked about these feasts and their significance in earlier studies as we've gone through the gospel. But the seven feasts that God gave to the children of Israel recorded by Moses in Leviticus chapter 23 were seven times or appointed days within the year when the people of God were to present themselves in Jerusalem before the Lord to fulfill the rituals of a feast that God had ordained. And those seven feasts all spoke of Jesus Christ, and they still do. They speak of Jesus Christ and what God intended to show forth through his ministry. He calls those seven feasts convocations in the King James Bible, the English word. And what that word literally means is appointments or appointed times. And what God was having his people do year by year when they would come and present themselves in Jerusalem was that they were rehearsing appointments that God had made with them that were yet to come. And those appointments were to be fulfilled in the life and in the ministry of Jesus Christ. Now, two of those feasts or appointments were the Feast of Unleavened Bread and of the Passover. Now, The unleavened bread spoke of the sinlessness of Christ because leaven in the Bible always is a picture of sin. It gets in just a little bit and then it works its way through the whole batch and it's got a corrupting influence upon whatever it touches. And so yeast or leaven, a picture of sin, but Jesus was sinless, thus the unleavened bread. The Passover spoke of him as the sacrificial lamb the innocent substitute whose blood would be applied to the door and that the death angel seeing the blood would pass over. Mercy would be extended to a house because blood was seen. And thus Jesus, who was sinless and who also was the Lamb of God whose blood would cause death to pass over all of those whose blood is applied, he is the fulfillment of those appointments. And so what we're coming to in this passage of Scripture is the time appointed for God to keep those appointments, the unleavened bread, the sinlessness, and also then the sacrifice of the precious Lamb of God. That's the season. Well, what starts it off and kicks off the events that will lead to 
the Passover or the sacrifice of Christ, we're told that the chief priests and the scribes were in their minds looking for a way to remove Jesus from the scene. They had a desire to get rid of him. And the reason why they wanted to get rid of him is because they wanted to keep their position and also their income. And in order for them to keep their position and their income, they had to maintain the status quo in those days. The people were looking to them as the influence or as the source of religious instruction. And now Jesus was coming on the scene and he was a threat to the status quo because he was against them and what they were teaching and what they were doing. And yet he had the allegiance of the people. And so in order to keep the allegiance of the people, something would have to be done to remove the presence of Jesus Christ. And so they have a desire to get rid of him, but they also have a problem. And that is because of Jesus' level of influence, they weren't able to just go and arrest him because in doing that, they would also then lose the favor of the people that they were trying to maintain. And so they wanted to get rid of him, but they had to figure out a wise way to do it. They had already tried to trap him in his words and they had been unsuccessful. And so now they need a way to frame him or they need to find someone that will give up his location in a time when the people aren't around so that they can take him in some way. And so they have a desire to remove him, but they have a dilemma and that they have no way to do it while he is there in their midst. Well, their opportunity comes in verse 3. It says that Satan entered into Judas, who was nicknamed Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. And so this man Judas now is possessed by Satan. Now Judas, who was one of the twelve apostles appointed by Jesus, was a zealot in his person or in his former life. What the zealots were was a sect of Jews that were in rebellion to the rule of Rome that existed over them in those days. And the zealots were more or less a militia of men that were constantly seeking for an opportunity to liberate the Jews from that Roman yoke of oppression. And what Judas found in Jesus Christ was a way wherein he could advance his cause and at the same time gain a level of influence in it because he looked at Jesus as one who was part of his cause. He looked at Jesus as one who would establish a kingdom that would overthrow Rome. But Jesus began to speak about a cross and he began to speak about a departure. And as Judas now is beginning to recognize that his ambitions and his hopes for what Jesus would do in his life And with those 12, as he sees that plan beginning to turn sideways now, he realizes that it's time to jump ship. And what we learn about this man, Judas, is that he never really had an allegiance with Jesus to begin with. He used Jesus as a means to propagate his own cause. Or he saw in Jesus a way wherein he could use Jesus to elevate and get what he wanted. There's a lot of people that do that even in the world today. They never truly surrender their life to Christ and say, God, your will be done. But rather, they make an affinity with Jesus, hoping that he will join in with their will and they could say, my will be done and God help me get there. The way that you know when someone has that mindset rather than the best mindset is because once the plan begins to go sideways and they realize that perhaps God's will is not to perform their will, they'll find a way to jump ship. They'll say, well, this isn't working out the way that I thought. They're using God, but they haven't given their lives to God. And that's what we have in Judas. And so he finds an opportunity now to jump ship from the 12, to separate himself from Jesus, and also to make some money in the process. And thus he goes to the chief priests that were gathering and he makes a deal with them. It says that he went his way, not God's way, And he communed with them and they came up with a way wherein Judas could get money and they could get what they wanted. And the Bible tells us that they were glad, that there was gladness in this agreement that they had forged in order to turn Jesus over to them. Judas would get what he wants. The chief priests and the religious establishment would get what they want. And in the process, Jesus would be betrayed unto them. And so here's what you have as we sum up these six verses. 
you have the rulers of Israel and the leaders of a nation that was intended to lead people to God and prepare them for the Messiah. And you have one of the 12, the very 12 apostles that Jesus handpicked. You have all of them falling to the sin of covetousness in one moment, in one day. The sin of covetousness is the sin of wanting more or wanting something to a point where you will do anything to get it. And the danger in the sin of covetousness is when the sin of covetousness grabs the heart of an individual, there is nothing worth more than attaining what it is that they want. And so they will give up or sell anything they have to in order to get it. That's what covetousness does within the heart of a person. And so for the chief priests, they're willing to trade the very Messiah that their nation existed for. And Judas, he's willing to trade every experience that he had and all of the future hope that he would have as an apostle of Jesus Christ because what he really wanted was money. He was a thief and he kept the bag. And so they fell to covetousness in one day. The Bible warns us from Genesis to Revelation of the tendency within the human heart each one of us has to fall into that very sin. The sin of wanting something earthly and allowing the lust and the desire to have that something to do such a deep work within us that we pay no mind to what it will cost us to get it. We see the effects of that in our society today, don't we? We see that people will sell their family. A man will sell his wife in order to get what he wants or a wife will sell her husband in order to fulfill that lust, that coveting desire that she has within her. We see that people will sell their future. They'll sell their retirement out. People will give up almost anything because the sin is so deceptive and yet it leaves you so very empty on the other side. One of the sad things about the culture that we live in in the United States of America is that we've almost Christianized the sin of covetousness, haven't we? We've almost made, and, and, and we've kind of bannered it under this thing called capitalism, that I have the right to get whatever I can by whatever means that I can. You must be very careful because that can so very easily be a cloak for covetousness. And covetousness is a dangerous sin indeed, and we see it happening here in the midst. And so ironically, at the same time that Judas and the chief priests are selfishly wheeling and dealing in order to betray the Lord, Jesus is about to make preparation to selflessly give his life even for them if they would choose to. It says in verse seven, it says, then came the day of unleavened bread when the Passover must be killed. And so he sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare us the Passover that we may eat. And so they said unto him, where wilt thou that we would prepare? And he said unto them, behold, when you are entered into the city, there shall a man meet you bearing a pitcher of water. Follow him into the house where he enters in. And you shall say unto the goodman of the house, the master saith unto thee, where is the guest room where I shall eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. There is where you're going to make ready. Now we can almost pass over this as just the details of a preparation for the main event that's yet to come. But it's really quite an amazing thing when you look at exactly how this conversation goes down and what these guys were told to do. I mean, they don't have official lodging in Jerusalem. They're visitors, they're guests there. And as Jesus gives this command, go and make things ready, they're like, Lord, where would we possibly do that? It isn't like we have reservations anywhere and we don't even know what you're talking about. And then Jesus kind of gives them this play-by-play process of how things are going to go out as they just go into the city. Oh, that's easy. You'll go into the city. You're going to see a man carrying a pitcher. That'll stand out to you because you don't usually see a man carrying a pitcher. That was woman's work in those days. So when you see him, follow him into the house that he goes. And when you get there, say to the goodman of the house, the master, hey, where's the room where my master can make ready with his disciples? And so they're like, what is he talking about? But they go and they do it and they find it even as he said. Now, here's the amazing thing about this. Remember the last little section where Judas got together with the priests? They were sitting here thinking, how are we going to make this happen? This betrayal, this uh, crucifixion, we want to kill this man. And then here comes Judas and he walks in and he's got the perfect solution. And it says that they were glad when they realized they had found a traitor amongst the 12. And I can almost hear 
the conversation amongst those priests when Judas came and then left. It's the Lord. This is amazing. God is on our side. He has made way by providence for us to get rid of this thorn within our side. It's providence, they would say. But what we see here now with Jesus sending these 12 is we see real providence at work. That is the leading of the Lord, how by careful obedience to what Jesus said, these men find it happen exactly the way Jesus said it would happen. Do you see the difference between the false providence in the former story and the true providence that takes place here? Jesus says, step one, step two, step three, now go. They go, they obey, they see it play out exactly as Jesus said. Why is that so important for you and I? Here's why. Because I find that God leads us in his will for our lives so often by providence and not necessarily by revelation. See, a lot of times we think that it's going to be by revelation. God's going to give me a dream or a word of knowledge or a word of prophecy, or I'm going to just have a moment of um, eureka where God's will is just revealed supernaturally into my mind. But he doesn't do that, except sometimes he does. But most times it's by providence. And that works like this. We walk in careful obedience to what God has prescribed for our lives. We follow what he's spoken in his word. We do and say and act the way that he has given us by the power of his Holy Spirit. And he then in return is faithful to lead us step by step. And so the outcome of our lives comes to pass exactly as he planned. It's so important that we follow his word the best way we can that we might see the outcomes of our life happen according to his perfect will. I read the story recently about when they developed the power plant uh, the generator that um, uh, that uses the force of Niagara Falls to bring electricity to the city of Buffalo. And so they engineered and then constructed this elaborate machine that would harness the power of that water, you know, millions of gallons per second that flow over it and the force with which gravity brings them from the upper level of the Niagara River down to the lower. And so they designed and they built this whole system and when they turned it on, it didn't work. And so they brought in all these engineers and scientists to look at it and analyze and try to figure out what was wrong with their calculations and why. Nobody could figure it out. And then finally, at great expense, they hired this one scientist and they brought him in to come look at their plans and then observe their machine. And as he went through the plans, it only took him a couple of minutes. And he found that there was one speck, just one uh, measurement that was an eighth of an inch off from what it was supposed to be. And he said, there's your problem right there. Move that over one eighth of an inch. And so they moved the gear or the pulley or the magnet or whatever it was. They moved it within that speck that it was supposed to be. They flipped the switch again and the entire city of Buffalo was provided with power because of just that one little detail. Now what that is, is that is man harnessing the laws of nature in order to benefit himself, employing the natural things that God has laid before us in order to make life easier for himself. But what the Bible teaches us is that in as much as that there is a natural law that we can benefit from, so also there is a spiritual law that God desires that we benefit from. In Romans chapter 8, verse 1, it talks about the law of the spirit of life that is in Christ Jesus. And there is this incredible power that God has given to us, his Holy Spirit, to live within us and then to be upon us and to govern our lives in such a way that we would operate and live within the power of God. But the law of the spirit of life requires that if we're going to experience that power and see it flow through our lives in the way that God prescribes, that we must walk in careful obedience to what he has put forth within his word. And that's why God says... Be careful to observe all that I've spoken to you. Let this word be in your heart and in your mind constantly. Meditate in it day and night. Because as we come into alignment with what God wants us to be and what God wants us to do, we're going to experience the flow of his power through our lives in supernatural ways. Go into the city. You'll see the man. Follow him in. Inquire of the good men. Say, where is the room? And that's where you're to prepare and make ready. And they found it even as he said. And everything that God says within his word that is a promise to you is for you. 
but be very careful that the specks are where they are supposed to be. And so they make ready. And then it comes, verse 14. It says, And when the hour was come, he sat down and the twelve apostles with him. And he said unto them, With desire I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Now that's amazing to me to consider because if you put yourself for one moment in the shoes or sandals of Jesus, what would you be thinking knowing that you're about to face what he's about to face? He's about to bear a cross that's heavier than any burden any man has ever carried. He's about to experience separation from his father for the first time ever in all of his existence. In just a few moments, he's going to be in a garden under such a strain that he's going to begin to sweat, as it were, great drops of blood, begging that what's to come would pass from him. And yet at this moment, so close to that moment, he sits with his disciples and he looks at them and he's got no concern for himself or anything that he's going to go through at all, but he looks at them and he can say to them with sincerity, with great desire, have I desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Now why? For two reasons. Number one, because it's the Passover that every Passover was looking forward to from the beginning up until this time. In fact, if you look at verse 16, Jesus says, For I say unto you, I will not eat any more thereof until it be fulfilled in the kingdom of God. In other words, this will be the last Passover that is recognized by heaven. Because this is the Passover that all of heaven has been rehearsing for through all of time. So that's reason number one, because this is the fulfillment of that appointment. But here's the other reason why Jesus had a great desire for this Passover with his disciples. Because it's in this supper time, it's in this moment right here, that Jesus is going to explain to them the significance of the cross that he's about to bear. See, he's going to go to the cross and the work is going to be done. But once he's in that whole you know, scene, he can't at that time explain to them why he's doing what he's doing and what it means. And so he does it at the supper. This is where they're going to learn the significance of what he's going to do. Now, they won't understand it at this point. But once they remember what Jesus taught them and then they observe what he did and then he rises and the Holy Spirit comes, all of it will make sense. And so for you and I, this is our chance to eavesdrop on Jesus' explanation of the significance of the cross. And so he says in verse 17, it says that he took the cup and then he gave thanks and he said, take this and divide it amongst yourselves. And so it was the cup, it was filled with wine, it represented the blood of sacrifice. But the cup in the Bible also represents something else. Often as you read from Genesis to Revelation and you come across the cup, you'll find that the cup also symbolizes the contents of a life or that which is placed into the cup being what that life represents, the contents of a life being filled up within a cup. In Psalm chapter 16, verse 5, the psalmist says, the Lord is the portion of my inheritance and of my cup for you maintain my lot. In Psalm 23, David, reflecting upon his life, the famous shepherd psalm, David said, my cup runneth over. When he looked at everything that his life had been filled with by the hand of God, he called the contents of his cup, the the, the attributes that made up his life. And so my cup runs over. There's other times in the prophets where the cup is, the contents of the cup is used in a negative sense or with a negative context. God says that he's going to pour out the cup of the wine of wrath upon them because they filled their cup with wickedness. And so the cup represents the contents of a life. And here's what Jesus is doing at this point. He's taking the cup that represents the blood or the contents of his life. Everything that he has carefully constructed, every day that he has by careful obedience made his way straight before his father and before those who looked on. He has filled a life with perfection and with righteousness. And now in his hand, the night before he's going to lay down his life, he holds up the contents of that cup and he says to them, take this and divide it amongst yourselves. And what Jesus is doing here is he is symbolically offering to them the contents of his cup or the contents of his life. 
I have built this. I have lived this life. I have attained the perfection and the righteous standard of my father. And now I am giving it to you. And so he says, take it and divide it amongst yourselves and be sure of this, that there was enough within that cup for each of them to partake. And there's enough within that cup for each of us now because that cup wasn't just extended to them. It was also extended to us. And so he gives to them the cup. Take it and divide it amongst yourselves. For I say unto you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God shall come. That's a great policy, by the way, if you're wondering if it's a good thing to drink as a Christian. Verse 19. And so then he took bread and he gave thanks and he broke it. And he gave unto them, saying, This now is my body which is given for you. This do in remembrance of me. And so taken, broken, given, and then received in remembrance of him. Likewise also the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood which is shed for you. And so Jesus now gives to them these uh, two elements of the bread, which he says represents his body, and then the cup or the wine, which he says is a representation of his blood. And so in this passage, what Jesus does is he is, is explaining two things that he is giving for them through his work upon the cross, his body and his blood that that's what he is doing through this work of crucifixion. He's giving them his body and he's giving them his blood. Now, man's biggest problem is the problem of sin. From the time of the Garden of Eden, when man fell and disobeyed the command of God not to partake from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. At the moment that Adam and Eve disobeyed that command of God, sin entered into the life of man. And thus the condition of sin passed upon all of the descendants of man after them. Now, sin, the word that we use in the Bible, is used in two ways. It is used as a noun and it is also used as a verb. A noun is a person, place, or thing. And thus sin as a thing, and I say sin singular, sin is a thing or a condition that we have. Each one of us is infected with sin, the thing called sin. We have it in us. And that's why we are sinners, because we have sin within us. Now, the verb use of the word sin is pluralized. It's sins. And what sins are, those are actions. When I yell at somebody because I get angry, a moment of rage, or if I steal something or disobey with my actions in some way, I have sinned and thus sin is an action that I do. Now, the reason why I sin in my actions is because I'm a sinner in my condition. So the condition of sin that lives in me causes me to commit sins without and all of the problems of man and the problems of the world can be summed up in that condition and then the actions that result from that condition that is known as sin within the world. Now, what does sin do once it gets into a life? And every one of us has it within our life. It causes three things. Number one is it causes separation between man and God. The Bible says that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. And thus, if I'm a sinner and if I've sinned, then I'm separated from God. And so I'm born into this world, alienated or separated from God. I'm not right with him. His favor cannot be upon my life. His salvation is not possessed by me. I am considered lost. I'm considered wicked and I'm considered condemned. That's what sin does within me. The second thing that sin does, which is a result of that, is that it makes me feel guilt or condemnation. The weight of that sin is within my mind. And that's the reason why I feel guilty. It's the reason why my soul can't find a place of rest. It's the reason why I lay up at night and I can't figure out the meaning of life or where I came from or where I'm going to go when I die. And there's an unsettledness, this, this something that's spinning around inside and it's looking for its place, but it can't find it. Or some describe it as the emptiness within the heart that nothing can quite fill. You can put stuff in it, but no matter what you put in, it just doesn't seem to fit right. And that's an unsettledness within the life. That's the result of sin. It's guilt. It's condemnation. It's conviction over the sense that something isn't right. And then the third thing that sin does is that it empowers Satan, our adversary, against us. And that is, the Bible says that he is the accuser. 
and that he stands in accusation day and night before the Father and also before us. And here's what that looks like, is that because we're guilty and because we feel guilty, Satan is right there to say, you're not right with God and you can't go to God. You have no place before him. You have no right to pray. You have no right to think that you're going to receive. You're condemned. You're mine. I'm going to burn you in hell forever. And he comes to us in those ways. And and his power in our life is established and fixed. The other thing that Satan does, if he can't get us to fall for that, or if our conscience has been so seared that that doesn't matter anymore, is that he'll lie and he'll say, you don't need to be right with God because you already are. God accepts everyone. All roads lead to God. You just keep going down the road you're going on and you're going to end up with God someday. Everything's all right. But the one thing that he can't do, even in shedding forth that lie, is that he cannot remove the guilt that sin causes within the life. And so sin separates, sin brings guilt, and sin empowers Satan. We're not right before a holy God. Now the blood of Jesus Christ that was given upon the cross, that blood serves three purposes probably serves a lot more but there's three overall the first thing that the blood does is that the blood satisfies god for the forgiveness of sins in romans chapter 3 the apostle paul is seeking to explain this to the roman church and he says in verse 23 he says for all have sinned and come short of the glory of god being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation or a sacrifice, an atonement, a substitute, through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God to declare, I say at this time, his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of him which believes in Jesus. Here's what that means. It means that from the beginning all the way to the end, God has ordained that blood be the sacrifice that would atone for sin. That's why in the Garden of Eden, God killed a lamb and then shed its blood and clothed Adam and Eve with its skins. That's why the whole Levitical system was was based and established upon a sacrifice that would be brought by the worshiper, the blood of that sacrifice being slain. But God says that through the, the shedding of blood, that's where there will be the remission of sin. For the wages of sin is death, Romans chapter 6, verse 23. And so God says that if there's sin, then death must come. And sin cannot be resolved without the shedding of blood. So every year, the high priest, he would on the day of atonement go into the Holy of Holies and he would bring with him blood. And he would sprinkle that blood upon the mercy seat and upon the instruments and the things that were in the tabernacle. And when God saw the blood, he would give atonement or pronounce forgiveness upon the people. It was in the blood. Again, with the Passover, God said, when I see the blood upon the door, the people were in the house. They had no clue what was going on. But God said, when I see the blood, then I will pass over. And so the blood satisfies the wrath of God for the forgiveness of sins. Now, the blood of Jesus Christ carried infinitely more value than the value of the blood of bulls and of goats and of sheep and of rams. The Hebrew writer says at the beginning of chapter 10, he says, for if it were possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sin, then they would not have needed to be offered every year but they could never cleanse the conscience of the sinner because although they could cover the sins, they couldn't deal with the root problem of the sin deep inside. But the blood of Christ, and through the blood of Christ, we have entered a new and living way wherein we are not just forgiven of our sins, but our conscience is sprinkled and we're set free from the guilt of sin. And so through the blood of Jesus, the wrath of God is now satisfied. And before him, We have the forgiveness of sins and the blood is of sufficient value to God to be the atonement. That's what satisfies God when he sees the blood of Jesus Christ. And so the blood satisfies God for the forgiveness of sin. Blood also satisfies us for the cleansing of our conscience. Notice again in Romans chapter three, verse 25, what it says there. It says, whom God has set forth 
to be a propitiation through, look at this, faith in his blood. You see that? Well, how does that work? How am I cleansed of my sin through faith in his blood? Here's how. Is that God says in his word that the value of the blood of Jesus is such that it is able to cleanse you from all sin. And so if God says that the blood carries enough value to purge away sins, then all I'm called to do is believe that what God said concerning his valuation of the blood, that that is sufficient. And so when my faith rests not upon what I do to save myself or my condition or even how I feel today, but my faith rests in that God said the blood is enough to cover your sins. That's putting faith in the blood and thus there is the remission of sins. And that results in something and it's in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19. The Hebrew writer says, having therefore brethren boldness to enter into the holiest, that's the presence of God, by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he has consecrated for us through the veil that is to say his flesh and having a high priest over the house of God, that's Jesus, let us, verse 22, draw near to God with a true heart or a sincere heart or an open heart, meaning the contents of my heart, everything that I am is exposed before God, warts and all, with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Now watch this, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience. Do you see that? In other words, the blood has power not just to declare me righteous in a distant court or on a ledger somewhere in heaven, but it also then has power to cleanse my conscience. Something that the blood of bulls and goats could never do. Something that could never happen when I was separated or alienated from God. And the result of the sprinkling of my conscience by the blood of Christ, that's when my soul finds rest. That there's an assurance in my heart that comes through nothing but faith in what God said about the blood of Jesus Christ that brings me into a place that I know, that I know, that I know inside my heart that I've been forgiven. And that God has cast my sin as far as the east is from the west and that he will remember it no more. And there is nothing else in the whole world that can cleanse a conscience or that can bring rest to the soul other than the blood of Jesus Christ. So it not only satisfies God for the forgiveness of sins, but it also brings ease to our conscience and it removes the guilt of sin, but it comes through faith in the blood of Jesus Christ. And then lastly, the blood of Jesus causes us to be able to stand against the accusation of Satan. The Bible says in Revelation 12, verse 11, that the accuser of our brethren is cast down because he is overcome by the blood of the lamb and by the word of our testimony. And that is that when Satan accuses us to God and accuses us as God, because that's what he does when Satan comes to us, he never comes and says, God's mad at you. He comes and he says, I'm so disappointed in you, my son. You failed me again. I thought I was going to be able to use your life. I had such high hopes and plans for you, but you have sinned yourself clean out of qualification. And if you could just have not done, or if you could just work your way back, that's how Satan comes. He comes as the voice of God. But do you know what makes us stand and to cast down his accusations? The blood. You say, no, no. I am not standing before a holy God, neither do I claim to have boldness or access into his presence by anything that I am, but I stand complete by the blood of Jesus Christ that was shed for me. And my righteousness does not exist in anything that I am, but it is completely in what he is. And through his blood, I have been declared righteous and you have no place in heaven's court and you have no voice within my ear, or within my heart or my mind. And he is overcome by the blood of the lamb. And so the blood stands for you and I as sufficient payment for the forgiveness of sins. Now, the blood takes care of our sins, the things that we've done, the verb part of the definition. But it doesn't quite take away sin, the condition of sin. That requires something else. And that God also provided through his death upon the cross. 
See, it wasn't just the cup of the blood that Jesus gave. He also gave the bread of his body. His body was broken. Well, how does that work? How does the body of the Lord deliver us from the presence of sin within our lives? It's a mystery, but when you read Romans chapter 6, verse 3, the apostle Paul says there these words. He says, know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man, that is our unsaved self, is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. Do you see that? That the body of sin should be destroyed, that we from henceforth should not, or rather we do not have to serve sin, for he that is dead is freed from sin. In Galatians 2.20, Paul would say, I have been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Again, in Colossians, Paul says the same thing, is that we've been baptized into his death. What does that mean? Here's what it means. It means that the moment that you were baptized into Jesus Christ, that you were born again, You were in a mysterious way, but yet in a literal way in God's court, you were crucified with Christ. You were placed in him. And thus, when he died on the cross, you died there with him. And what that means is that now that you're in Christ, the power of sin has been broken within your life because you are a new creation in him. Well, does that mean that I don't sin anymore, that I'm completely free from it? No, no, no. You have the perfect capacity to sin because you have free will even today. But here's what it does mean. And if you hear one thing tonight, Christian, hear this, is that you no longer have to sin because the power of that sin or that sin would have over your life has been broken by the body of Christ being broken upon the cross and by your being placed in him at the moment of your baptism Sin's power is broken in your life. That's why Paul would say, knowing that now from henceforth, we do not have to serve sin because he that is dead is freed from sin. Listen, if you're struggling with sin here tonight and Satan whispers in your ear and he says that you cannot be free because this sin has a grip on your life and you can't get away from it, you say you are a liar because the Bible says I'm crucified with Christ and that the power of that sin is broken. And if you stand up against that sin, you will find in God you have the power to stand up against it. That's what Jesus provided upon the cross. Forgiveness of sin, satisfaction before God, and freedom from the presence of sin as a noun within our lives through his broken body. We are one with him. Praise the Lord. So Jesus gives to them the Passover and he explains to them what's about to take place without the cross without getting into the details of it like I just did. He knows they'll figure it out and they will and we do. And so Jesus then goes on and he says, but behold, the hand of him that betrays me is with me on the table. And truly the son of man goeth as it was determined, but woe unto that man by whom he is betrayed. And then they began to inquire among themselves, which of them it was that should do this thing. Now, this is a remarkable moment because they just had this supper. Jesus handed out the cup. He handed out the bread. He explained what he was about to do. He declared his love upon them. And then he turns gears a little bit. And you can almost hear the awkwardness of the moment come in as he looks at the 12 of them. And with that perfect love, he says, one of you is about to betray me. And one by one, they begin to become introspective. And they say, Lord, is it me? Is it possible that it could be I? What strikes me in this is, first of all, that they had no idea that it would be Judas. You would think, you know, after all that we've read about the man, that each of them would be like, yeah, we know, Judas. Yep, Judas, it's Judas. What they were probably thinking is, Peter. I knew Peter was a phony. He wasn't, he wasn't really right all along. He was never really with us. But they didn't know. Not one of them knew. And in that moment, it became a very searching thing for each one of them to think, could it be me? 
that would betray the Lord Jesus as he is declaring before us that one of them is going to do it. But then notice what happens in verse 24, and this almost makes you laugh if you catch it. It says, and there was also a strife among them, which of them should be accounted the greatest. Now, how much of a flip is that? You go from an introspective communion moment where you're thinking, Lord, what search my heart. Lord, show me if there's betrayal in me. Show me if I'm a traitor and I'm going to turn my back upon your cause. Lord, I know I'm better than they are. <laughs> and I know that when I come into your kingdom, you're going to have a place prepared for me. That's, I mean, they just flip right here in a moment. Isn't it amazing how frail flesh is in this thing? And Jesus said unto them, knowing that they were having this argument amongst themselves or even in their hearts. He says, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them. And they that exercise authority upon them are called benefactors. In other words, you guys are all familiar with the way the world deals with authority. In the world, everything works on a pyramid structure. The people at the top, they have the most power. They have the most money or influence. And they exercise lordship over all of them that are under them. And their status is determined by how many people submit to what they say. That's how it works within the world. The most powerful are on top. And everyone else is called their servants or their benefactors or those that bring benefit to them. The problem with the pyramid structure is that it's driven by the force of wealth and strength and submission under a pyramid structure is based upon fear. What does Jesus say in verse 26? He says, but you shall not be so. But he that is greatest among you, let him be as the younger. And he that is chief among you, as he that does serve. For whether is greater, he that sits at meat or he that serves, is not he that sits at meat, but I am one among you as he that serves. In other words, Jesus says, in the kingdom of God, it's not gonna work the way it does in the kingdom of the world. It's not a pyramid structure, but rather in the kingdom, it's a servant structure. That is, look at me, Jesus says, and he holds himself up as an example. He says, I'm obviously the greatest. I'm the Lord. I'm the one that you're all listening to in submission to. But notice that the way that I lead among you is that I lead as one who serves. Jesus would wash their feet at this very supper, not recorded in Luke, but recorded in John. He would go around the table. He would take the lowest place, the form of a servant. He would humble himself, even removing the clothing that he was wearing. And with just a towel girding his loins, he would go around the table and wash their feet as in silence they watched God Wash the feet of sinful men. Jesus would constantly be serving them in every way. He holds it before them constantly. But yet at the same time, we see that he carried an authority that was so amazing, wherein that he would look at them at some point and he would say, hey, go into the village and you're going to find a, a colt tied. And when you see it, just loose it, take it, bring it to me. And if anyone challenges you on it, say, the Lord has need of them and they won't give any more problems. Do you see the way Jesus just gave direction? He was administrating, telling, he was leading, telling them what to do. Just in the very chapter that we're reading, he tells Peter and John, listen, go into the city and prepare the room. And they don't blink an eye. They don't say, who does he think he is telling us what to do? They don't murmur along the way and say, you know, someday we're going to have the upper hand on him and he's going to go and make ready. They don't do it. They're in absolute submission. But the reason why they're submitted to him is not out of fear and because of strength and force but rather it's because of love. There was a love that had been demonstrated by Jesus that built trust to a point where they were in submission to him because of his authority that was based upon love. Now apply that to our lives. Every one of us in some way is in a position of authority, whether we're parents and we're leading our children or whether a husband leading a wife or a mother who is nurturing and training up children, maybe homeschooling them or in some other context. Some of us have supervisory positions in the places that we work where there's people that are under us. Some of us are captains of teams and there's various ways wherein we are leaders in our world. And God says to every Christian, you're the head and not the tail and we're to be leaders in our world. But the way that we're to lead is in the servant style of leadership. That is that we're to make our love so known through our service that the submission that comes our way is submission that's based upon love and not out of fear. And Jesus says, that's the way it's supposed to be within my kingdom. And would to God that he would make it that way within his church and his expression of the church within the world. Then he promises them the position that they will obtain in verse 28. 
He says, You are they which have continued with me in my temptations, and I appoint unto you a kingdom as my Father has appointed unto me, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. You're going to have a place, guys. I've already prepared it for you. It's awaiting you when you get to glory. You're going to sit upon a throne and you're going to have the authority that you are desiring. But it won't be in the way that you thought or will it come in the way that you thought nor will it be exercised in the way that you hope. But you're going to be sanctified. You'll be perfected by me and you'll serve in my name. We'll pause there for tonight and we'll get into Peter's personal interaction with the Lord as we continue uh, with the narrative next week and we see a wonderful work that the Lord is about to do within Peter's life. But if I could leave you with a thought as we uh, close now, as the worship team comes and we um, go to worship and head on our way tonight, it would be towards the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus. And it strikes me to think that even at this moment when Jesus is about to lay down his life for them, these guys are still yet, even at that moment, sinning. They're striving. They're fighting among themselves over who's going to be the greatest. They're operating in stark contrast to what the kingdom represents in every way. And yet, even in the middle of it, Jesus is in a posture wherein he's going to lay down his life for them. And listen, he's going to finish the plan that he has for each one of them. Notice the last thing that Jesus said in the passage where we left off. He says, you guys will sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. You don't understand it yet. Your approach is completely wrong in the way that you're looking at it. But once you see what I do and once I'm perfected in you, you're going to come into that place where you're made to be where you're supposed to be. And that is true for every one of us that are here tonight. He looks at our lives and he sees us as we are finished and not as we are. That's the way he looks at us. And he's gracious to us ever still. Understand this, church that the blood has been shed for the forgiveness of sins. God is satisfied by what was accomplished through Christ. Through his body, we find victory that we no longer should serve it. And he is working his work of perfection within our hearts so that we might be sanctified and made complete in Jesus Christ. And know this, that he will never let go of your life. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 5 says that we are kept by the power of God unto salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. In Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, says that he who began a good work in you, he will be faithful to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. We're going to see next week the work that God takes up in the life of one of his own, and we'll see ourselves through the lens of it. Father, we thank you so much for the word that we have here tonight and all that it represents and speaks to us. And we pray, Father, that you would take the things, Lord, that have been sown into our hearts and that you would make them live within us. And we pray, Lord, for a fresh revelation of what you did and who you did it for and that we might walk in newness of life. We thank you for your word and for your perfection, for your grace. Be with us tonight, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand.